Hey there, jabronis. On today's episode of The Byword, Dave and I will be chronicling our favorite aspects of the Attitude Era of pro wrestling and getting to the bottom line of what made these years stand out. So listen up, brother, because this episode is too sweet. Welcome into another amazing episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Today, the Brothers of Destruction, Dave and myself, will be talking about our favorite aspects of the Attitude Era of professional wrestling. We promised that Dave was not maimed in a house fire, and I am not actually, in fact, the dead man. However, I do look sweet in all black, and you should see Dave on a rampage when the kids aren't turning in their schoolwork. The idea for this episode has been stewing for quite some time, ever since our interview uh, last year with comedian Mike Lawrence, and I found out mid-interview on air that Dave was also a massive fan of pro wrestling from this time period. Uh, But first, there's been a torrent of nerd news, so we've got to get you covered there. Uh, Dave, what's your story for the week? Yeah, so the big news coming out of DC Comics this week is that the regular monthly Superman title is set to be replaced with a new title, Superman, Son of Kal-El. The book will focus on teenage Jonathan Kent, the son of Lois and Clark, who takes over his father's duties protecting Earth. The book is set to be written by Tom Taylor with art by John Timms. Now, as a huge Superman fan, I'm incredibly torn about this news. On the one hand, it's Tom Taylor, whose current Nightwing is already one of my all-time favorite takes on the character. John Timm's art on Young Justice, uh, among many other projects, was also fantastic, so the creative team on this book is top-notch. On the other hand, there's the Bendis of it all. I mean, look, I I love the rebirth era of Superman. It was so spot-on and a lot of fun. And one of the things that made this run so good is the family dynamic that was established between Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and their preteen son, Jonathan. If ever there was a superhero made to be a dad, it's Superman. And the book just worked. It was it was incredible, really. And then uh, Brian Michael Bendis jumped ship from Marvel to DC and... Well, his run on Superman mostly left me cold. One of the biggest problems to me was that he aged up Jonathan Kent and shipped him off uh, to the future to have adventures with the Legion of Superheroes. And that move essentially destroyed what was still a fairly new dynamic in the Superman books that still held countless story possibilities. Jonathan's characterization as a teenager has also been pretty bland overall, especially compared to his characterization as a preteen. His interactions with Damian Wayne alone as Robin are so good and so much fun. So on the one hand, I I trust Tom Taylor and John Timms. And on the other hand, I wish they'd just de-aged Jonathan Kent and returned to sort of a, a rebirth era feel for the Superman books. They are working so hard to try something different when they haven't even fully explored a status quo that actually worked. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm completely out in left field in the woods here when it comes to DC continuity and all of that. I'm I'm leaning on your expertise. But um, on the other hand, I'm a massive Tom Taylor fan. and, And everything that I've read from him is absolute, not even gold, it's platinum, it's perfection for me. Uh, his X-Men Red is one of my all-time favorite X books, um, and I've read quite a few. So um, it, it's just amazing what he can do in these like short runs. Um, uh, I also love his friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and it's it's a it's a great maxi series, um, and and some of the best Peter Parker content that we've gotten in years. So I love how he understands his characters. Uh, his all-new Wolverine is is on my to-read list very very soon. Um, and I'm also excited to, um, I I picked up the first issue, but I haven't, uh, read it yet of his Batman detective, uh, story. So I'm, I'm super excited to see that. And I, and I'm just glad that, that he's getting more work than these mini and maxi series. I know he jumps back and forth between the big two on different titles. So he, he's kind of got a foot in each pool, 
but but I'm glad to see that he's going to be on a regular book. So as far as you know the 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 roster of Superman comics, I'm coming at this as a very very casual observer, but I'm excited to see you know Tom get some get some you know extended work here. Yeah, and I can agree with that. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan already of his Nightwing, and we're only two issues in. Uh, he he really uh, has a, a knack for getting sort of the, to the core of the characters he's working with and, and so, sort of representing uh, those characters in their purest, the sort of distilled form. And so, you know, I'm interested to see what he does with Jonathan. I just really hope he manages to recapture some of that that exuberance and joy that the character had as a preteen before he was sort of blanded out. Yeah, well, in in that regard, I will give him like all the credit in the world because the work that he did specifically with with X Men Red, um, you know, Jean Grey has been kind of ups and downs for me in, in type in terms of like the quality of the writing of that character, and he did a lot to to really you know give her like a, a good characterization and, and a compelling and interesting storyline um, alongside you know some of the supporting characters in that book that um, I had little to no experience with um, and some that he introduced for the first time that I instantly fell in love with so uh, here's hoping yeah yeah exactly now Chris you're taking us back to the MCU Marvel man what you got uh, so I cheated a little bit. Uh, I've been a bit of a renegade the last couple of weeks, with, you know, coloring outside the lines. But um, there have been so many exciting news nuggets coming out this week for the MCU that it didn't feel right to just pick one and then we not talk about the others. Um, so here's some quick hits. Uh, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go, you know, you know, super speed here. Uh, Khaleesi herself, Amelia Clark has been cast in the upcoming Disney plus series, secret invasion in an unannounced role. Some of the internet speculation include the roles of queen Varenki of the scrolls, who was the architect of the scroll invasion in the comics. So that's probably a strong one. Uh, Abigail, Abigail brand, the one I'm hoping for the bad green haired director of sword. Um, and even Spider-Woman, uh, I saw a Screen Rant article speculating a Spider-Woman. My personal hope is for Brand, um, as S.W.O.R.D. has already been introduced into the MCU uh, via WandaVision. Um, and she would also be a direct link into bringing mutants into the MCU, as she is herself a mutant and half alien. So you got like the cosmic part of it, and then you're also streamlining mutants. So that's my hope. But... If I have to bet, if I had to go to Vegas on this, I would think Queen Varanki would make the most sense story-wise, especially with an actress uh, of her gravitas and 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 the acting chops that Amelia Clark has. Uh, number two on our quick hit list, Russell Crowe confirmed in an interview that he will be playing Zeus, King of the Greek Pantheon, in the film that I'm looking fo- uh, most forward to, Thor Love and Thunder setting the internet ablaze with Hercules speculations. Uh, Now, for those of you that don't know from the comics counterpart, Hercules has been like this friendly rivalry with Thor. Um, They're very much, you know, very similar in their respective pantheons of the gods. So they always have these friendly competitions of arm wrestling or whatever. So I'm excited to see Hercules, uh, you know, speculatively introduced into the MCU. Um, now I am excited about this news. This movie is starting to get quite crowded. You've got the guardians, which I'm thinking and fingers crossed are just going to be like at the very beginning, uh, a very, very short time. You've also got Jane coming back and that's a huge storyline that, that needs to breathe. Uh, and then you're throwing in, you know, Zeus into this. So I'm, I'm hoping it's just not overstuffed and everything gets their respective area to breathe. Um, thirdly, Fans got their first teaser trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and boy, it did not disappoint. The fights looked to be incredibly choreographed, well done, and the storyline surrounding Shang-Chi and his father is truly compelling. In fact, it sent me down a deep martial arts flick rabbit hole. I watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, Mortal Kombat kind of scratched that itch. We'll talk more about that soon. Um, needless to say, I'm super stoked for this one. And finally, the latest breaking news from Marvel is that there will be indeed a fourth Captain America film following the events of the finale of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Now, I'm trying my best to avoid spoilers here, but I was very glad to see this news as a lot of meandering plot lines uh, were begging for further storytelling at the end of the sixth and final episode. So I'm super excited to see where all these characters go from here. Dave, your thoughts on all of this I'm hitting you with. 
All right, I'm gonna try to do the quick hit list. Uh, let's go ahead and start with Shang-Chi. Uh, I'm pretty darn enthusiastic about this trailer. I really, really love martial arts movies. I, I don't think I've made a secret out of the fact that I'm big into Asian cinema to begin with. My love of kaiju is just one aspect of that. And so seeing the MCU take on this genre and kind of put their own spin on it, I think has the potential to be incredibly interesting and a new flavor again for the MCU. And we've talked about the notion that much of the MCU feels a little samey. So anytime that they step outside of that and try something new is ultimately a good thing. More flavors is what we need in uh, the MCU. Obviously, I'm not super familiar with Shang-Chi as a character. I've seen him pop up here and there uh, as a guest in other series, but I've not really read uh, any of his solo materials, so I'm, I'm eager to learn more. Uh, the Amelia Clark and Russell Crowe thing... Look, I, I, I trust Taika Waititi, first of all. Uh, if he thinks Russell Crowe is the right guy to play Zeus, I'm here for it. I've just kind of soured on Crow's performances over the last few years. Uh, his turn in Le Mis was questionable. <laughs> um, and although his take on Jarrell in Man of Steel wasn't bad necessarily, his Robin Hood was... Oof. I mean, look, I, I don't think I ever loved Russell Crowe more than I did in Gladiator, and that's been a hot second. And I don't know if he's just not been picking great roles, great directors... Or if I've missed some of his best stuff in recent years and, and it kind of flew under the radar. I really hope he's fantastic in Thor. Uh, I, I really, really adore vintage uh, Russell Crowe sort of, you know, around the gladiator time. He was absolutely fantastic in that movie. Uh, Amelia Clark to me, really is similar. She's clearly cap a capable actress, but outside of her performance in Game of Thrones, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything I, I truly enjoyed. Terminator Genesis was not exactly a good movie, and I don't think Clark was very well cast as Sarah Connor. Um, you know, now that I think about it, my favorite performance of hers was probably in Solo, a Star Wars story, but that was not... Uh, that meaty of a role, basically. So again, you know, I think she's capable. I I, I hope she does fanta fantastic work uh, for the MCU, but it's been a hot second since I've seen her in something I really enjoyed. And I'm a little worried, actually, with this casting news, because I think as the MCU progresses and, you know, is making more and more money, you know, these billion-dollar movies that they're focusing more and more on casting household names, safe bets, name recognition people. You know, when Robert Downey Jr. was cast as Iron Man, he was considered a risk. Uh, Chris Evans was, you know, fairly well known, but not exactly A-list when he was cast as Captain America. And I really, you know, kind of enjoyed that that risky casting. Uh, and I hope that the MCU continues to, to put performance over name recognition and take some risks. Which, it, you know, brings me to your last news item, which, which actually has me very excited. Again, trying to avoid spoilers, but I think from everything that we know about Captain America 4, this is kind of a little bit out of the comfort zone of the MCU. And, and I think it's the right move. And I'm really, really looking forward to Captain America 4. It, you know, in the, in the grand pencil pusher scheme, that movie sounds like a bit of a risk, especially fit, spinning out of what is essentially a TV show. But you know what? It shouldn't be. And I'm glad that they're doing this. I'm, I'm probably, out of all of these things, most psyched for Captain America 4. And I really, really, really want to see what they're going to do with that, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. I echo a lot of your sentiments. Um, the The reason that like, I'm, I'm super excited about it is, is you know, the, the chemistry between Sebastian Stan and, and Anthony Mackie is just top notch. I know that we were kind of hesitant about it with like the first trailer that we saw and didn't really kind of showcase that. But I, I think it is by far the, the strongest overarching thing of this entire series. And and hopefully we get to dive more into that um, into uh, in the film like this, this whole like bromance slash like antagonistic relationship where they can't stand each other, but they're like best buddies. Like I really have loved watching their relationship kind of blossom over these six episodes. And I can't wait to see it on the big screen. All right. That wraps up our nerd news segment for the week. When we come back from this, our first break, we're going to be getting some attitude adjustments. Stick around. 
All right, welcome back for today's Byword Big Talk segment. We are diving head over heels into the attitude era of professional wrestling. Now, for those of you who may be uh, not too familiar with it, here's some context uh, about what, what would we mean when we say the attitude area. And this is a direct entry from the Wikipedia article. The attitude area was a term used by World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, then known as World Wrestling Federation or WWF, to describe the company's programming during the Monday Night Wars, a period in which WWF's Monday Night Raw went head-to-head with World Championship Wrestling's WCW's Monday Nitro in a battle for the Nielsen ratings each week during the late 90s and the early 2000s. WWF's programming branded as, quote, WWF Attitude, end quote, from 1997 to 2002, um, featured adult-oriented content, which included an increase in the level of depicted violence, profanity, and sexual content. This era was part of a wider surge in the popularity of professional wrestling in the U.S. and Canada as television ratings and pay-per-view buy rates for WWF and its rival promotion saw record highs. So we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, professional wrestling. Pro wrestling had, has probably not seen like a bigger surge in popularity than it was at that point. Um, and then, you know, we're around about the same age. So these were formative years of our middle high school and college years to where we were growing up with this and, you know, really piqued our interest. So this was, uh, you know, really in our wheelhouse. So we each had to narrow it down to our feet. Three favorite things is where we're getting a little bit nostalgic this week. Three favorite things from this era of wrestling. Dave, what is your first favorite thing about Attitude Era Wrestling? Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to lie. You uh, kind of entered your three choices first, and a couple of those would have been on my list as well. So I decided to draw a little outside of the lines and not talk about necessarily you know, favorite wrestlers or anything like that, but but kind of trends that were going on during this time. And the very first thing that I think I need to talk about is simply the announcing, particularly the announcing at uh, WWE, then WWF. Uh, the announcing team of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler was something special. I cannot, for the life of me, picture the Attitude Era without the voices of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler on commentary. To me, they are not just the voices of the Attitude Era, but probably the finest announcing team in pro wrestling, period. The chemistry between the two was basically pure gold. JR may be the best commentator ever. He was always knowledgeable in terms of history and the business. He also took this really decent, honest approach to commentary. He was in a lot of ways, the audience surrogate, he rooted for the good guys, despised the bad guys, was shocked by shocking events, cheered great matches. JR was basically one of us. And, and this kind of made a special space for Lawler to be sort of the bad boy that sides more with the bad guys, makes inappropriate, inappropriate comments. And then, you know, JR has to kind of rebuff him. And even though they basically rooted for different kinds of wrestlers, their commentary never was confrontational. It really felt more like a mild disagreement between two close friends. Their banter was so much fun to listen to. Even when the matches were maybe not as entertaining as you'd hope, Ross and Lawler kept the audience entertained. You know, JR had such a passion for wrestling. I can still hear him yelling, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, Stone Cold, or announcing that an upcoming match was going to be a slobber knocker. Uh, com <laughs> combined with, you know, this quick wit and humor of Lawler, we had the very best announcing team ever. Nobody has even come close since, Chris. Yeah, man, in, in a lot of respects, uh, you know, the King and, and good old JR are like the soundtrack to my childhood. I mean, I, gr I, I grew up and, you know, when I was in the, in, in my backyard on my trampoline, jumping around and quote unquote wrestling with my, my wrestling buddies, those little pillow uh, type things uh, that I would wrestle with, like I would hear their voices in my head and um, it's, it, it, I got a hot take. I think I think Jim Ross is the best play-by-play -play commentator in all of sports. In all of sports, I, I I really think that it doesn't get much better than him. And and it was immediately the draw for me to check out AEW when I saw that he had he had crossed over from them. I thought like, wow, that's a big get 
for this, you know, young and hungry brand that's really trying to set out for them to pull over JR. Like that was a big one. Um, and I, I totally echo your sentiments about the chemistry between the two of them. The good guy, one of us, good old boy, cowboy hat mentality uh, of JR and, 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 and just like that respectable character. Um, he's got his own barbecue sauce for God's sake. <laughs> um, and then you have the, the creepy perv of, you know, Jerry, the King Lawler. I I'll never forget, you know, Deborah came on coming out with Jeff Jarrett. And he'd just be screaming puppies. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, he's such a creep. And like, and you know, we look back on it like 20 years later and just like, Oh, you know, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable, but like, I, I think with with Jr. to like kind of cut him down right there, I think it worked. Um, so you know, would you do this differently if if you know you had this team in twenty twenty one? Maybe, probably, but I think it's it's not as you know cringy as it could have been without Jr. to kind of balance the scales there. So, and I just love the dynamic. Like you said, it's it's a disagreement between friends and. Like, I just, I just love hearing it. I love, one of my favorite things about, you know, being on Twitter is the 90s WWE account. And they like, will take like videos, viral videos, and they'll just put JR and the King's voices over it. And it's just perfectly timed because I mean, like it doesn't get much better than these two. Yeah, absolutely. I just, it's hard for me even now to turn on, you know, WWE product and and just kind of check it out to see what's going on. And noticing that, hey, you know, there there is no no Jim Ross, there is no Jerry the King Lawler, and I'm like, you know, these guys are not bad, but but something just feels off. It by far one of my favorite things about the Attitude Era, and and even you know back in the day when SmackDown kind of branched off from Raw, and they had Michael Cole and Taz, and now Michael Cole is like their big one now that that Jr has left. But like having Michael Cole and and Taz on 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 SmackDown, I was like, what is this great value, Jr. and the King? Like you still had them trying to do those same roles where Taz was the antagonistic announcer and Michael Cole was the root for the good guys one. And and like I I always look at Michael Cole and I think of you know the Rock you know just clowning him when he was a backstage you know interviewer and i was like you're not jr get off the screen but yeah so (laughs) it's it's really hard to kind of follow that up yeah absolutely now chris what is your first big favorite thing about the attitude era of wrestling oh man it's got to be the rock he's always been my favorite wrestler even when he was rocky mayavia and you know just like he's just so iconic and i think the reason that the Attitude Era worked and the reason that it launched all of this interest is the character work. Like, okay, we're grown adults now. We know that professional wrestling was staged. Um, you know, like the wool has been removed from our eyes. So when what would when you know that this is all an act, when you know that this is not quote unquote real, I mean, you know, these injuries are real. These are actual trained professionals, but you know what I'm saying? How do you get people to buy in? And for all intents and purposes, it is the acting chops of these people and their ability to capitalize on their personalities and their characteristics. And I think no one did that better than The Rock. Like he has this gravitas. He has this presence. Even now, 20 years later, is he's like this A-list movie star. His social media presence, his you know, work in the community, being on the big screen. I think he's the big dynamite personality that that kind of has transcended and still remains, you know, ever present, you know, all these years later. I mean, for God's sake, we've been waiting how long for Black Adam just because his name is attached to it? Like, it's crazy. And, and just the, like, the catchphrases... Um, like his promos were top notch, like finally the rock has come back to whatever town or city that he was in. Like it was just always a list content. It was always good. And just the fact that he would just always find a, a way to playfully dog his opponent, um, 
like one of my favorites is when he tells like i think it's the the when he's going at the big show and he just starts talking like nonsensical garbage or he tells somebody to shut up and like and then you hear like the king's voice just go ah! like it, it's so good like his promos were top notch i mean i idolized him from age eight on like i would have a fake elbow pad that I would rip off my arm, throw it across the room and lose it. And then, you know, I would conduct a people's elbow on my action figures or my pillow. Like the the guys just, I, I mean, like when I first became a dad, I got in trouble for trying to rock bottom my kids. Like as soon as they were able to walk, like, so the rock was my first favorite, my all time favorite. And I still follow his work to this day. You know, um, I like Dwayne Johnson, the actor, just fine. He's a fun dude, makes good action movies overall, and is a charismatic performer. But I'd still trade in every single Johnson movie for one more year with The Rock. The Rock stands as one of my all-time favorite wrestling characters. Sure, there were and are wrestlers more skilled in the ring, but I'd argue that there has never been a wrestler better on a mic. This overblown, over-the-top character was everything to me during the Attitude Era. His promos, his storylines were always what I looked forward to the most. I'll never forget the backlash pay-per-view when he finally beat Triple H for the championship. I knew it was scripted, I knew it was a performance, but I didn't care. I cheered like it was Germany winning the World Cup. The Rock was first and foremost, I think, a a storyteller. His promos, his matches, every moment he was on screen or in the ring furthered a story in a compelling way. I mean, people like Kurt Angle could wrestle circles around The Rock. And yet, the two were able to put on a super entertaining match and and make each other look amazing. And I'd argue that The Rock's in-ring storytelling skills were second to none. But yeah, his attitude to me, even more than Stone Cold Steve Austin, exemplified why I love pro wrestling during the Attitude Era. His snide sarcasm, his hilarious promos, the -the over-the-top confidence were simply perfect. This was, uh, and still is, my, my favorite wrestler of all time. And so again, I like Dwayne Johnson just fine, but I will always adore The Rock, Chris. I, I And I think for me, I think it's that like, it's that personality like you kind of latch on to fictional characters that have something some joie de vivre that like you're you're wanting you wish you had yourself so like i was like this this kid who didn't have a lot of self-confidence who who didn't have a lot of self-esteem and i was kind of i I self-doubted a lot and then to see this person like have so much overflowing with confidence and cockiness and attitude pun intended like it was aspirational for me like yeah i am awesome yeah that's me so i i I love i love also and i think my overarching thing um like i said before is to why this was so awesome this was cannot miss can't miss tv this was appointment television at its finest you had to be there monday night switching back and forth between nitro and raw you didn't want to miss a single minute of it um was because of the character work. And like one of my favorite things about The Rock was uh, the Rock and Sock connection. Like you had these two improbable teammates of of Mick Foley's Mankind with Mr. Socko. Why in the world would he ever be a tag team partner with like Mr. Fancy Thousand Dollar Shoes, The Rock with his like Gucci shirts and versace pants like why would they ever be a team but it works so much and the comedy between the two of them it was just perfection yeah yeah i i, I cannot add anything to that man I, t- I wholeheartedly agree i love mick foley anyways and he was almost on the list of you know best things about the attitude era but i think i think foley in a lot of ways transcended the attitude era he was there you know before um in in various promotions and was doing a fantastic job and he, and he stuck around long after and continued to do a fantastic job in various other roles so um but yeah i, I totally agree all right so speaking of tag teams that's kind of leading us into your second point dave yeah you know tag teams are such an interesting part of the pro wrestling scene and i still feel that they were never served better than during the attitude era 
I feel like the tag teams today are often treated as a stepping stone to a greater solo success. And sometimes that works. I mean, it, it worked for several people. But more often than not, leaning into the team dynamic leads to much better results. And the best example of this is probably the Attitude Era. The three tag teams that will forevermore stand out to me were the Hardys, the Dudleys, and Edge and Christian. The feuds among the, those three tag teams were, were epic. There was so much talent present in those three teams. You know, Jeff Hardy's willingness to leap off of pretty much anything made the Hardy Boys matches inevitably a spectacle. The Dudleys and their gimmick of putting people through tables, whether that won them the match or not, was great in-ring storytelling. And you never knew when Bubba would snap and tell Devon to go get the table. Then there's Edge and Christian, who were the perfect team of arrogance and skill. Their gimmick, of course, was using steel chairs for a, I kid you not, concerto. I'll never forget the first ever tables, ladders, and chair match. Oh my, SummerSlam 2000. What a match, man. What a match. You can put that sucker on today and it still holds up. Then they followed it up with a sequel the following year at WrestleMania 17, and both matches were showstoppers, no, show stealers. It wasn't just that they were a lot of high-risk moments, the in-ring storytelling was just fantastic too. And you know, I occasionally tune into Raw today just to see what the product is like now, and it inevitably leads a little bit to disappointment. And one of those disappointments is that the tag team division has just kind of disintegrated. There was a time when tag matches could be the best matches on the card. And that was, of course, the Attitude Era. And the fact that they don't lean into tag teams anymore the way they used to. They don't push that sort of tag action, pushing teams the way they used to. I think that is a huge mistake of the modern WWE. Yeah, absolutely. And and it got to the point where like um, another one that almost made my list was the amazing video games that we got, um, you know, during this time period. I mean, the, um, the, the SmackDown games one and two, I mean, it was so much fun. Um, WCW versus the world was, was one of my favorites as well. You got to, to go international. Like it doesn't get much better than that. Um, but it, it was so much so like it was so th- these characters were so inseparable that like if you were to play like a one V like a singles match with like one of those characters, it just didn't feel right. Like um, like if you were to play with just uh, Bubba Dudley, it was just like, well, where, where's D-Ray like uh, or Devon, excuse me. Um, or, or if you were to play with Jeff Hardy, you were like, well, where's Matt? Like this doesn't seem right. Um, I, I was a huge fan of the brood. Um, you know, that also one of the things like we could go on forever. One of the things that like really just caught my attention. We, we know how much I love music, how nerdy I am about it. For God's sake, our first episode had like however many music clips, like the entire idea of having like entrance music, like that's like the overarching thing for me as a, as a fan of professional wrestling that I was is how cool would it be if you were to walk into a boardroom or walk into a faculty meeting or walk into, you know, whatever, like your classroom and you have entrance music, like how cool is that? And, and, and the, uh, another aspect of these tag teams is they had like these incomparable, like magnetic entrance themes and like their, their, their entrance as a whole, the way they would come out, the way they would interact with the crowd, the way they would pose, was just so awesome. The way the brood would just rise up from the floor was so awesome. Like, I, I, and I, like, uh, you know, I mentioned um, to you personally that I was watching WrestleMania and like a lot of it kind of fell flat because it was like you said, it was just like solo versus solo, 1v1. And it was like, where's the camaraderie? Where's the brotherhood or sisterhood of, you know, like a tag team match? And, And, you know, that was something that I really clung to was like depending on someone else and like, you know, these friendships and these these teams, you know, kind of forged by adversity that I really think is lacking now. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. All right, Chris, what is your second uh, big favorite like of the Attitude Era? Oh man, it's the New World Order, NWO, specifically the Wolfpack. Like, this is how impactful it was. Uh, I played recreational YMCA basketball and I convinced 
my teammates to name the team the wolf pack like that's how big i was on it and i made them choose black and red colors so like nwo specifically the wolf pack um like like i said uh with the rock where you're kind of like seeing things in in other personalities and other characters that you wish you could be yourself and just that kind of i was i was a really goody two-shoes kid um growing up i always like was afraid to get in trouble but like just this like whole like rage against the machine type mentality of the nwo specifically the wolf pack they were a revolution against the revolution the wolf pack so um led by kevin nash and uh less scott hall i wasn't i didn't really like scott hall but um you know scott Snyder. when i saw sting in red and black face paint those were like my two favorite colors as a kid like it was just incredible buff bagwell um you know uh, and my personal favorite my favorite wcw wrestler of all time was conan like you know you had some big names some legendary names that fought uh, that wrestled for decades but conan was my favorite i grew up you know as you know it's my career to be a spanish teacher i grew up fascinated by latinx culture and to see this puerto rican cuban guy kind of just lean into that culture it was just captivating to me he had the cool flannel shirt that was only buttoned at the top he had the cool hat the leather gloves the baggy jeans like conan was super cool um and and like i said just like this whole like uh against the world type mentality of of being yourself and being a revolutionary and kind of pushing back against the establishment um and i mean like it gave us one of the most iconic signatures of of the wolf pack and too sweet like uh so the nwo specifically the wolf pack was was one of my all-time faves i got nothing chris i never watched wcw i I mean i'll be honest with you i tried a couple of times and i simply love wwe's product so much better back then the little exposure i got to the nwo was when nash hall and hogan came to wwe in 2002 and the whole thing left me pretty cold. I don't think the WWE did a really good job utilizing the NWO once, once they arrived. The best thing by far we got out of it were some truly excellent matches between Hogan and The Rock. You know, well, may, maybe not from a technical standpoint, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, from an in-ring storytelling perspective, I mean, Hogan was getting a little long in the tooth already at that point, but those matches were a lot of fun. And as far as the NWO and the WWE, pfft, did nothing for me. I prefer Degeneration X, and I know that might be a, a weird thing to say as somebody who never watched that much WCW, but I, I enjoyed Degeneration X back then a lot more. Oh, I, I, I can I could totally understand that. Um you know, like it was a whole movement and and I probably did that gesture that that is um associated with degeneration x probably one too many times on the playground so i i I've got love for, for dx too especially um the uh bad billy gun love me some bad <laughs> yeah billy was was really awesome and uh you know i know they tried to they tried to solo push him a couple of times and it it just never quite worked out which i thought was sad i think he was a a really good performer well the, the entire and road dog jesse james how could i forget like that whole like speech montage you as as fans of this show know i am all about like a thespian like dramatic you know performance i love acting i almost went into it i just wanted to make money and and have a stable career you know in college so i i did not choose theater but but it's like a one of the things that i love through and through but like i can't i i used to have it memorized but i don't anymore the road dog jesse james the bad Billy Gunn. It doesn't get better than that, man. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. All right. Uh, Dave, what is your final uh, thing that you loved about the Attitude Era of pro wrestling? You know, this is going to sound obvious, but I think I need to expound on it a little bit. It was risky, and it was not family-friendly. The best thing about the Attitude Era is right there in the name, and that's Attitude. This was never family-friendly stuff. The gimmicks of wrestlers, the -the over-the-top storytelling, the general edgy vibe of, you know, waving middle fingers and taking on the establishment resonated with audiences in a way the modern WWE simply doesn't. The Attitude Era was born really out of necessity. The WWE had to fight 
uh, to uh, you know competing against WCW, fighting for every viewer, and the only way they could win was to go big, be bold, and lean into the bat poop crazy storytelling. And there was so much bat poop crazy storytelling. There was a hardcore championship that had to be defended 24-7 in no disqualification matches. Random matches starting in all sorts of locations. Title holders were walking around paranoid at all times that somebody would attack them. It was absolutely priceless entertainment. This is a time when the undercard was insane. Val Venus's gimmick was that he was a former porn star. The Godfather came to the ring accompanied <laughs> by his hose because, yes, he was a pimp. <laughs> Al Snow was running around with a mannequin head that he talked to for crying out loud. It was bonkers. It was over the top. It was always unexpected. And because of that, it was a crap ton of fun. You know, the thing that sticks with me the most about the Attitude Era compared to today is the long-form storytelling. Storylines could take months, sometimes over a year, to completely resolve. There were twists and turns. Feuds had a chance to to breathe, to escalate. Ultimately, that meant that we got some fantastic matches and storytelling. Today, everything seems to resolve within about four weeks, just in time for the pay-per-view that month. And then the cycle begins again with new feuds rather than you know Im- improving on and escalating existing stories. Today's WWE is just so bland by comparison. It's kid-friendly, but it also feels, you know, dumbed down, I guess is the way to put it. So many other companies, like, for example, Pixar, have found ways to make family-friendly content that appeals to all ages. WWE has not figured that out yet. Most of their faces right now are so boring, the heels are the ones who get all the fun stuff to do. There's really not a chance for, for... faces to shine i think and the storylines are too short and low stakes i will say this the best thing by far about the modern wwe to me is that women are finally being taken seriously as competitors rather than you know quote unquote eye candy uh, for male viewers if i could take the modern women's division and transplant it to the attitude era that would be fantastic But yeah, I simply miss a time when the WWE would take risks. Beer drinking, middle finger waving Stone Cold would never have a chance to develop that character today. The Rock and the stuff he said? No way! Triple H running around and hitting people with a sledgehammer? Forget about it. You know, Chris, I fear we will never again see a wrestler like Mae Young give birth to a hand ever again. (laughs) So... I, I miss that edginess, Chris. I just, I just miss the unexpected, bonkers storytelling. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Now, I will say that I, I enjoyed large aspects of WrestleMania, the the most recent one, um, and it was particularly surrounded uh, around the the match between Bianca Belair and and my fave, my current favorite female wrestler, Sasha Banks. So, um, and I totally agree with you. If we could take that and they weren't just puppies and eye candy and it was just like, let's how, see how skimpy we can get. And, you know, which is a trope of the 90s. I mean, like, look at Image Comics. Like, that that was one of their biggest calling cards was boob windows, you know. Um, so I, I totally agree. If we could take that or, or vice versa, take the mentality of really leaning into the character work of the attitude era and transplanting that today, whichever one, um, I think that would be a perfect marriage. Um, and, and I totally agree because I, I will never forget like sneaking way past my bedtime and finishing Monday night raw. And you get like some surprise attack. And then you see like the victim of said attack, just staring disbelievingly as the credits roll. And you're like, no, I need more. Like, and they would always like run into the next show that was supposed to be on, like so we're like okay you're already interrupting the next show can i just please get more of this content and then having to wait a week oh man like it, it was just non-stop drama and action and they and i think that's really what happens when you have these seminal characters and you gave and you give them room to breathe and that's i think that's like the perfect um you know recipe for success and and now i i can't tell whether or not you have the same level of talent character wise or acting wise, but we wouldn't know because like you said, it's this compressed fast food kind of 
you know, thing month to month from whatever the pay-per-view is. Like, I remember feuds going multiple pay-per-views and then like a revenge match in the next pay-per-view. So yeah, give it room to breathe, man. Yeah, yeah. It's the the long-form storytelling, I think, even more than than the general um, inappropriateness of some of the stuff that was happening is a real hallmark of the Attitude Era that is sorely missed today. All right, Chris, what have you got for your final big like of the attitude era of wrestling so uh we kind of hinted at it with the long form storytelling and this is probably one of the ones that i stole from you by by jumping in the dock first but it's got to be the stone cold steve austin and vince mcmahon rivalry that was the one that like captivated for for years years it was a back and forth vince mcmahon firing stone cold only for him to show up at raw the next week and i mean for god's sake there was one um particular promo that i remember so vividly is is vince mcmahon laid up in a hospital bed with his foot in a cast um and then austin you know disguised as the doctor in scrubs and then all of a sudden he takes out a bedpan and then just mercilessly beats him with a freaking bedpan you know and then like probably the most iconic of this is where Vince was in the middle of the ring doing some kind of tra-la-la, like gala-type presentation with a red carpet. And I'll never forget um, Austin diving over the top ropes. And it's partially because of JR saying, Austin got McMahon, Austin got McMahon over and over again. And like, he's just pummeling. So the the back and forth, like, like I said, it just went on for years. And it was one of those things that like, as the credits rolled Monday night, you're like, damn it, I need more of this. So the Austin McMahon rivalry was probably, I don't know if we say best for last, but like probably the one thing that came out of this era as the most resonating thing when like you look back on it 20 plus years later, like if you had to pinpoint one thing, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon. And this is just leaning into those characters that they have built and giving them room to breathe and just flex their muscles, pun intended, and like just do what they do best. I mean, into where you you've created this persona now where Stone Cold Steve Austin has his own talk show after Raw. He's got his own beer for crying out loud that I'm dying to try if I can get it shipped here. Um, but yeah, Austin McMahon. You know, one of my friends at the time was a huge Stone Cold uh, fan, and I could certainly see the appeal. I enjoyed him a great deal as well. You know, the foul mouth, the middle fingers, the beer drinking. Austin was the poster child of the Attitude Era in a lot of ways. And although I personally preferred The Rock, the thing that made Austin work, and I think why his heel turns never really did work, is that his character worked best when he was going up against authority. The audio audience was basically living vicariously through him. I mean, who didn't want to give their boss a stunner and flip them off? <laughs> the Austin-McMahon rivalry was absolutely fantastic, filled with you know memorable moments, twists and turns, and constant over-the-top action. Uh, Here's another example of a rivalry, just as you mentioned, that got a chance to breathe, that could take a long time to unfold, to escalate, had twists and turns. It was just really fun, interesting storytelling. So although I was never uh, as big a fan of Austin as I was of The Rocks, this rivalry is definitely among the best, if not the best, that the WWE has ever produced. I do want to, though, give an honorable mention to another feud that the um, that Stone Cold Steve Austin was in that I don't think gets enough credit. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about his feud with McMahon, his feuds with The Rock, uh, his feud with Triple H. But to me, one of the most fun Austin feuds was actually the the feud between between him and Booker T. I don't think I've ever had as much fun or laughed as hard as when. Uh, on a particular episode of Raw, Booker T decided to leave because he was tired of Austin chasing him. And no matter where he went throughout the rest of the two-hour episode, Austin would show up and try to pummel him. In memorable places like a supermarket, or my personal favorite, in a confessional, where Steve Austin <laughs> was actually uh, acting like he was the priest and then jumped through and uh, tried to beat the snot out of Booker T. A fantastic feud that I don't think gets enough credit from uh, this time period. But yeah, I mean, Austin McMahon was absolutely tops. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that's, you know, probably part of it is, is, you know, recognizing who's, who's, 
who could be a better villain in this era than Vince McMahon himself? He's like a real life villain. I mean, like with the way that wrestlers have been treated in, you know, in their retirement ages and, and not having benefits. So that, I mean, it's perfect, you know, villainy, but, um, you know, now he's up there in age and you, you can't really trot him out like you, you used to be able to back in the day. But um, I, I love Booker T. I have mad love for Booker T. Uh, so I, like it, it makes me happy to think about that. I just bought an action figure of Booker T for my son the other day. So like that always makes me happy to see some Booker T. I do feel like we've only really scratched the surface about the things that were awesome about the Attitude Era. We didn't even get a chance really to talk much about stuff like, you know, Undertaker and Kane and their feud and then their team-ups. You know, Paul Bearer as one of the absolute best managers. Um, there, there, there's so much stuff that was going on in the Attitude Era that was absolutely fantastic. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, even sort of the mid-tier, you know, not not necessarily main event wrestling. There was so much good stuff going on, so many interesting characters. It was just, it was just never boring. Uh, the one thing you could never accuse, especially the WWE of during this time period, was that it was boring. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like. Um, you know, it's my, that's how, this is how timeless that storytelling is. My, my nine-year-old son, all he does in his free time, he doesn't play Fortnite anymore. He's obsessed with Kane and the Undertaker. So he watches YouTube videos, um, nonstop 24 seven. I'm not exaggerating. It's literally like, it's time to do schoolwork now. He's watching, you know, wrestling matches from 1999 of Kane and the Undertaker. And, and, you know, to, for, for myself personally, it, it is the very first storyline that I remember watching, like the whole house fire of Kane, you know, being maimed. And then like, you know, the whole idea of Kane, like unmasking was just revolutionary, like, no. And like the whole voice box thing, just incredible. And that was probably some of the best storytelling. And I can't believe we didn't even, you know, get into that, even though we're getting into it now, but it's just nuts. So like how awesome nonstop action. I mean, like Godfather and the hoe train, like what? <laughs> oh man. It's so good. It's so good. And so, and, and, you know, kind of doing the prep for this episode, you know, really brought back some, some fond memories, like having an entire backpack filled with action figures to the brim you know, wrestling in my trampoline, you know, um, accidentally launching neighbor kids off of said trampoline because I got a little too vigorous. But uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's just a fond trip down memory lane, this whole episode, man. Yeah, I agree. And it made me it made me incredibly nostalgic and it made it really made me miss the days when I could, you know, just seriously enjoy the WWE's product and, and just Every, I mean, Raw was must-see television. I, I had to watch Raw every single week. It was it was the absolute best show, most entertaining show. Uh, just uh, two hours, and, and usually two hours and ten minutes, or two hours and five minutes, uh, of, of just pure joy. Uh, and I do miss that. I, I miss it a great deal. It, it's the one way that my little goody-two-shoes self kind of pushed back against authority, and I would sneak up past bedtime just to watch it, so... It was the best thing on television by far. I remember, I remember when um, uh, the Rock and Sock Connection first joined, and I called my friend, and he said, "Dude, my mom is in sleep. She has to get up at three o'clock in the morning for work. Don't call my house." And he hung up on me. But I was just so like, "This is who else do I tell this? Tell you know, tell about this." We didn't have text messaging back then. Like it was just so good, man. Of course, no doubt Twitter would have been like that. The horrible pairing. I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that wraps up our byword big talk of the week. I mean, like we could probably do three or four episodes on this, to be honest. We may revisit this again um, because pro wrestling, you know, during that era for uh, for myself, and it, it was just so awesome. But um so yeah, when we come back from our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we're back for our final segment, nerd commendation time. Dave, you got a YouTuber that you're recommending? What is going on? Dude, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, there is there is a sort of a corner of YouTube that I absolutely love. 
and that is uh, video game YouTubers, not streamers. I'm I'm really not into streaming. I, I don't enjoy watching other people play video games. I want to play them myself. But I really like, you know, YouTubers that, you know, talk about video games sort of in historical context or, you know, put a particular entry of a series into its context and does some comparative videos between various video games. I, I like a little bit of uh, historical background to go along with my video game playing. Surprise, surprise, given my background as a historian. And, you know, I've talked uh, in the past about video gamers and some of my uh, video game YouTubers and some of uh, my articles that I've published online, but I have not had a chance to talk about this one. And this one really has kind of gotten my attention lately. And that is uh, Matthew Kowaleski, who goes by Matt McMuscles. He is a YouTuber known for his in depth analysis of video games uh, and easily the best content. Uh, that he puts on YouTube, and my nerd commendation for this week is a series that he calls What Happened. Uh, these videos take an in-depth look at video games and consoles that had a troubled production, are considered bad, or were canceled before release. So videos in the series usually run somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. Sometimes they're a little shorter, sometimes they're a little longer, but that seems to be the sort of the overall sweet spot. And they are really just a sweet, sweet dose of video game history. As somebody who loves video games and history, it's really the perfect combination for me. And he also doesn't shy away from the occasional injection of humor, which of course I always appreciate. The videos are well-researched, fast-moving, and entertaining as heck. One of my favorite videos delves into what went wrong with the release of Nintendo's Wii U console, which was a good console hampered by public misperception, poor marketing, and a lack of games, basically. Uh, there's also a really, really great episode on uh, Mighty Number no. 9, uh, the Kickstarter, and how this uh, spiritual successor uh, for Mega Man basically failed miserably. Uh, McMuscles also uh, made videos on games as diverse as uh, Mega Man X7, Dark Souls 2, Rise of the Robots, and Castlevania 64, of all things. Now, if you if you were there for Castlevania 64, you know what kind of disappointment that thing was. On top of that, he will also occasionally branch out and discuss movies such as Dragon Ball Evolution and Freddy vs. Jason. So, in short, when it comes to gaming YouTubers... You know, Matt McMuscle's What Happened series has quickly become one of my favorites. There's really good stuff there, a lot of historical context. And uh, it's, it's just really nice to kind of delve into, you know, what went wrong with some of these games. So this is super interesting because um, I, I very much am of the same mindset. And if if Twitch streaming or, you know, YouTube streaming is is your thing, is your, your go-to sort of entertainment, we're by no means gatekeeping. It's just, I also would much rather play the game myself. Um, also, as far as YouTube, like I, I just see so much toxicity when it comes, like anytime that I hear about YouTube, it's usually someone being hateful, someone being a comics gator or someone trying to limit the exposure or, or limit diversity or something hateful. So I'm glad to say that there's something else out there when it comes to, you know, video game YouTube. My my exposure to YouTube, my experience with YouTube is usually strictly limited to movie trailers that I'm excited about or like walkthrough tutorials on levels that I'm struggling with. Um, so that's that's about all I do on YouTube. But um, it's, it's really interesting that you say this because I was just listening back to uh, last week's episode when I, I was making this exact point about, you know, talking about video games with you from the historical perspective. So this definitely kind of scratches that itch and, and kind of, you know, being interested in video games and historic history at the, at, at the same time. So this is super intriguing. And I will also say there's a great uh, YouTuber called the video game historian that is um, even more so somebody who delves really in historical context of video games. Um, but yeah, uh, rule number one, Chris, if you're going to hang out uh, and watch YouTube videos, is just to never read the comments. You can avoid about, I would say, 80% of all <laughs> toxicity just by ignoring all comments on YouTube videos. <laughs> all right, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? So, Dave, I know that I know what you're going to say, but I'm recommending another X book. Um, no, this... really? <laughs> <laughs> but this one this one might be an interesting entryway for you. Hear me out. Okay. It features it features a Catholic protagonist. <laughs> um so so Way of X number one was a debut issue this past week 
It's written by Cy Spurrier and with art by Bob Quinn. And it features my all-time favorite mutant, the priest himself, Father Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, as the main protagonist of the series. Um, if you are looking for, you know, quote unquote, necessary prerequisite reading, I would highly recommend reading X-Men number seven of the current volume, um, where they, they discuss the crucible and what it means to, um, you know, really, how do you value death in a world where mild spoilers, mutants in Krakoa have conquered death, so to speak, and they have resurrection protocols. So if you go on a mission and you die, they could just, you know, build you a new husk and resurrect you lickety split. Now there's a queue and there's a long line and sometimes you get moved up the line, but whatever. So you really don't have to worry about death. And for what's really interesting and, and, and intriguing about this book is you know, Nightcrawler is one of the few religious spiritual characters um, in the mutant world. He is an ordained priest um, and he has this, you know, very strong faith that kind of guides his path and, and directs, you know, his choices. And what does that mean to um, live in a post-death society, so to speak? Um, he he takes issue with um, some of his teammates that are, you know, a little devil may care and kind of recklessly going on a mission because they don't care about dying because they could just be resurrected, you know. And then it gets into some really metaphysical, philosophical debates between himself and my other fave, Magneto, about, you know, what is religion, um, you know. And, you know, Magneto makes an interesting point of, all the all the gods of these pantheons you've encountered except for the one that you claim um so it's just this really interesting dynamic really meta context of you know religion in the modern era and you know as a deeply spiritual person myself this was a really really interesting debate you know combined with you know the the action that i love in in an x-men book so way of x number one is is really expertly written it's got some real great in you know humor uh so so high compliments to Cy spurrier who this is my first you know introduction to his writing and i'll definitely be checking out his other works um art by bob quinn that is super super fun um a lot of you know, interesting characters that I love on this. And, and um, so I know that the Krakoa era can be a tough place to kind of jump on, but um, you know, for the debates alone on this issue, I, I really, really enjoyed it. You know, of uh, the countless never ending expanse of X-Men related nerd commendations you've made this year. Uh, this one strikes me as probably the most interesting. The notion of a mutant paradise is not that interesting to me, but the notion of Nightcrawler trying to, uh, you know, apply his religion to this paradise and maybe finding something slightly off about it, uh, th that's much more interesting to me. I enjoy Nightcrawler a great deal as a character anyways. He's German, is he's Catholic. I don't know. I, I relate somewhat. I don't know why. G <laughs> giving him the spotlight in this book sounds like something I would gravitate towards. The notion of this Krakoan resurrection stuff raises all sorts of interesting questions anyway. And I'm kind of surprised it's taken this long to really, you know, question those things i mean is the person that comes back truly the same is it just a duplicate uh where does the notion of a soul factor in uh, and and seeing a book actually willing to explore some of those questions yeah yeah that's interesting to me of course i would no doubt have to read a crap ton of comics just to work my way up to this book which sounds exhausting but um <laughs> I, I may try to just dive in and and you know google whatever i don't understand and just see you know if way of x is maybe my way into this whole krakoa thing yeah so as i said like x-men number seven they explicitly lay out what the crucible is um and you know kind of you know what all that entails and you have kurt kind of giving the precursor kind of prelude to this book with like even the idea of founding a new mountain uh, a new mutant religion based on all of these developments um, and himself, you know, what does this all mean? So X-Men number seven, for sure. Um, probably the X-Men main title would be would be a one to, to read up on. I, 
I, I'm a big fan of most of the X titles. Um, I have a few that are, I could, you know, take or leave, but but um, the, probably the X Men main title, specifically issue seven, is probably requisite reading for this one. All right, well, I might give that a shot. All right, that wraps up another attitude-infused episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you for sticking around with us and be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app that you use. You can also find us on nerdbyword.com. And please don't be a stranger. You can find us on social media. Feel free to interact with us. We are on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword. You can also find us individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. And uh, those good conversations usually bring about some great ideas for future episodes. Absolutely. And stay tuned because we are coming up on our one year anniversary episode. Episode 52 will be our nerdies episode where we will hand out awards to our favorite uh, items of nerd culture from the year past. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>